schools need the trust of parents to do their job. They need parents to be um, to trust them to leave their kids with them for seven, eight hours a day and to teach them um, into the wonderful world of ideas that we have in physics, maths, literature, drama. Um, and know that when they come back from school, the kids aren't going to have been told that ideas that their parents have are rubbish or wrong or, you know, immoral or oppressive. You know, that is not the role, that is not for, that is not for schools to do. Today I sit down with Alka Sago-Cuthbert, CEO of Don't Divide Us, a campaign group that challenges racial identity politics. Alka is an academic, author, educator and campaigner who believes passionately in the importance of impartiality. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Alka Sagokuthpa, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you so much, Lee. Pleasure to be here. So most organisations involved in race campaigning say it's, racism is the issue that's dividing us and what we need to focus on. But it seems from the name of your organisation you feel maybe there's something else dividing us. What is it? Yes, I think there is. I think um, the two really important cultural things, if you like, that are, I think, responsible for really opening the floodgates to all kinds of divisions are firstly a rejection of the universal idea um, of equality, that we are moral equals, that I suppose had its highest expression in Enlightenment thinking. It's been developed since then in different places. But if you reject the idea of moral equality, then I think it, you open the floodgates to um, all sorts of divisions. And I think feeding into that is a rejection of another Enlightenment idea, um, actually probably pre-Enlightenment, and that's the idea of tolerance. Um, <clears throat> or rather the value of tolerance, because increasingly we find tolerance being rejected or being stigmatised or being seen as inadequate. And what we need is zero tolerance in order to, um, you know, get to some utopian ideal more quickly and bypassing the necessity of persuasion and democratic dialogue. So in the, in the summary, you released a report on the, the damage inflicted by councils anti-racist policies for schools. Mm. Um, but obviously we're all against racism, but I think anti-racism used by the councils has a, a different definition, is that right? <clears throat> yes, it certainly does. Um, I mean, officially you'll probably know it in, the, in its new name of EDI, or Equality, Diversity and Inclusion, or some, some councils call it Active Anti-Racism, or the new anti-racism. Um, <clears throat> now, to my mind, uh, those things really uh, refer to two really major threats, I think, to democratic ways of life and democratic culture, which is, one, EDI. <laughs> Behind EDI sits a whole network of global corporations who are really accountable to nobody other than themselves, really. Um, they're certainly not accountable to national governments and they're not accountable to professional bodies they seem to have a free run of things um, in terms of their influence and, if you like, the percolation of their ideas, especially in our cultural institutions and particularly our educational ones, which, you know, I've been a teacher for most of my life and that's really important to me. Um, I think that's very, very pernicious because it means values and ideas are being taught as if incontrovertible facts and they're not the values that have been discussed and agreed upon 
by the people of the nation. So I think that is really, really a, um, a very uh, pernicious trend that needs somebody needs to look at seriously. So in your report, you say the um, anti-racism policies the councils are, are employing in schools are having a detrimental impact on educational aims. How does yeah. that work? Well, how it works, let me give you, um, let me give you an example, right? Yeah. a concrete example. This is from a teacher, um, and it really rings true with my own experience as a teacher. Which is, as a teacher, you're meant to, you know, the idea is you can teach any idea at an age-appropriate level as long as you teach it impartially. Now, being impartial doesn't mean that you don't have any values at all or you're some kind of value wimp or anything like that. It means that you place the value of truth and truthfulness um, above everything else as a teacher. As a citizen, you can have whatever ideas or political preferences you like, but as a teacher, you have to teach impartially. So say, for example, you're teaching about the, um, you know, you're having a social studies lesson or a PSHE lesson on the uh, taking down of the statues. You must have heard there was a lot of statue demolishing in, in America and in Britain. Well, say, you, you know, you're, you're having a lesson on taking down the statue of Edward Colston. If, as a teacher, you talk about that, you ask your pupils to consider why people want to take that statue down, and then you give, a, say, a work task to your class, you have to write about who would replace Edward Colston's statue, um, then you have not taught impartially, right? You have been partisan. And the reason you've been partisan is because you have dismissed, you have not even introduced, or if you have introduced, you might have done it very, very kind of, you know, dismissively, uh, the, uh, the fact that an awful lot of people in Britain did not want that statue to be taken down. They saw no necessity for it. So in that sense, it's not even like a question of what you teach, it's so much as the kind of shaping of opinion and, you know, sort of gently sidelining a whole swathe of respectable public opinion and making it disrespectable to say. So you're silencing the majority, really. That's a terrible thing to do, terrible thing for anyone to do, but especially for teachers to do. So I get the feeling it's not one or two rogue teachers who are doing this. How, how widespread do you feel this politicisation of schools is? Well, to be honest, you know, I know there are a few individual schools and individual teachers who are not doing this, but they are the minority, right? This is likely to be happening in all schools, and I can say that with some confidence because no one, in, no one with... Um, you know, any proximity to the levers of power, either political or in terms of the profession, are doing anything to even, you know, acknowledge this. They don't even acknowledge it properly. They don't understand it. And they're certainly not doing anything to counter it or to stop it. It's in the curriculum. You know, this isn't just like, you know, we will have one lesson of CRT-based um, ideas every week. This is, this is a concerted attempt by a minority of ideologues to change every subject from, from literature and history, which are the most, uh, you know, kind of commonly known ones, but down to physics, you know, up to physics as well, and mathematics, to make them a vehicle for this idea of um, basically devaluing or applying a hermeneutics of suspicion, you know, being really suspicious of any idea that 
you know, Western knowledge or anything developed in the West could have anything good going for it. You mentioned CRT, which is an, an American yeah. um, import. So yeah. we were basically saying that we're, we're bringing American theories in and using them to formulate council policy in the UK. Uh, they're in. <laughs> it's not future tense, it's present tense. Um, if you look at most council policies, uh, you know, the mantra is, of course, as a systematically racist country, we need to. Of course, as bearers of bright privilege, we need to. You know, those, those are there. That's the kind of default assumption now that the majority of councils are accepting and endorsing, whether knowingly or not. Um, as a base, as a starting point for formulating policy, that's not a good starting point. So playing devil's advocate, as, as a racist society, we need to use this hyperbolized kind of race theory to highlight the the racial structures that are, that are kind of inherent in our society. And what would you say to that view? Well, look, I I would um, I would refer back, if you like, I take my starting point. A very important point made in the Commission of Racial and Ethnic Disparities report that um, Kemi Badenoch uh, commissioned last year and was headed by one of our um, advisory council, actually, uh, Lord now, Lord Tony Sewell. And that report said, uh, you know, if you actually look at what's happened in Britain, not America, we're talking about Britain, we have seen waves of progressive legislation in political life and legal life that have effectively entrenched equality. Now that doesn't mean that everybody is going to be treated equally on the ground in society because all sorts of complexities and differences do come into play there. <clears throat> but if you're going to say something is institutionally racist, you need a high bar of evidence, right? And we're not seeing anything like sufficient evidence to support these claims. What we're seeing are references to lived experience and a lot of very dramatic, intense kind of, you know, performed agony of, uh, you know, trauma and things like that, um, which, uh, um, you know, somebody may feel traumatised. I'm not going to deny anybody's lived experience, but that doesn't mean it is sufficient proof for the huge claim that a society or a particular institution is racist to the core, right? So first of all, you need to establish whether there is a problem of racism, and then if there is, you need to understand it properly. Yeah, you need to look at whether that is intentional or unintended. Is it, was it a factor of, you know, maybe 20 years ago when a cohort of lecturers entered a particular university, there weren't many black professors, you know, there weren't many black graduates entering it then. Maybe they were too old or too young, you know. Um, so that would mean 20 years on, you will see less black professors, if you like, going through. So that needn't, the cause of that, disparity needn't necessarily be racism so you do need to prove it and then if you if it's if you think there is a problem then we need to think of kind of solutions that will make improve things for everybody because usually you'll find um, if, if that was a problem then you need to look at well you know how can we make access to degree courses available for those who really really want to study who have got an aptitude and have got the willingness to do put the hard work in, irrespective of money or colour or anything like that. And that would be like a universalist approach to social problems. Your report talks about the anti-racism policies of the councils eroding the trust between the parents and the schools. How does that happen? 
Well, this is probably one of the saddest things, you know, um, the number of emails that we've got over the past two years from parents who have been shocked when they've found their kids coming back with um, tales of either being told that they have white privilege or that they are oppressed or, you know, reading material that is, you know, blatantly partisan and should not, you know, for five-year-olds, um, from letters from the school saying no children are, you know, even infants aren't racially innocent. This flies in the face of parents, most parents' beliefs, right? That, you know, most parents do not believe that everybody is inherently racist um, and that that is a majority problem. And so when schools are doing that, they're actually, they're actually going against the beliefs, you know, the kind of core beliefs of, so, you know, how you socialise your, your children, of the parents. And that's a terrible thing to do. It's not only terrible, it actually goes against the 1996 Education Act. Um, so it's kind of legally wrong as well, but legal, legalism aside, um, schools need the trust of parents to do their job. They need parents to be um, to trust them to leave their kids with them for seven, eight hours a day, and to teach them um, into the wonderful world of ideas that we have in physics, maths, literature, drama, um, and know that when they come back from school, the kids aren't going to have been told that ideas that their parents have are rubbish or wrong or you know immoral or oppressive. You know that is not the role. That is not for that is not for schools to do, that's for children to do on their own, in their own time, if they choose to, as they grow up. We've talked about the teachers and the parents. Another key issue that you raise is about these external organisations or third-party yeah. providers. What kind of role are they playing? An awful one. <clears throat> really awful, because most of the ones... I mean, we identified over 60 in our report, but... I'm sure there are more. I mean, I know there are more because, you know, people have told me there are more and they're not the ones that we didn't, uh, are not in our list. Um, they're responsible to nobody. It's the point I was saying before about, they're not all global corporations, by the way. Some of them are quite homegrown, local, you know, kind of two women and their, and their, and their dog kind of setups, and they're very committed and, you know, kind of activist orientated. But there are some... Um, Am I allowed to mention any? Or, yeah. Well, I mean, there's certainly Flair is, is an organisation that has come up uh, a lot of times from teachers and from parents. Um, and I think they are a pretty big outfit, certainly very glossy website and everything. We, uh, really, we need to be looking at these things more closely. And what they do is often they're invited into hapless, they're invited into schools by hapless heads who think, oh my gosh, it's Black History Month or oh my gosh, this has happened, it's a really big thing in the news, we've got to do, be seen to be doing something. And they don't really know, they don't have the time or the inclination or the wherewithal to think through the issues themselves. So they just look for somebody who's got a ready-made package and they'll call them in, often at a lot of, you know, huge expense. Um, I know one school, you know, Flair's been, they're going to be doing two years of training with the staff. This has resulted at this school in an assembly where the head teacher has cut, it's a predominantly white area, it's not a inner city London or Birmingham or Manchester, it's in a suburban area, um, and the headmaster comes into this whole school assembly and tells every child to look 
at the skin colour of the people in that room and to look at the skin colour of the teachers and then to go on about how terrible it is that they're all mainly white. I mean, what a thing to say, what a thing to say. So the kid children are kind of at best bemused and puzzled, at worst mortified. There's a new teacher at the school that's just been taken on. She happens to be from a Commonwealth country and is not white. She is totally mortified because she now feels that she's been labelled as the token, you know, hot teacher. So she feels really undermined. So what this is doing, what this tells me, is that people are being are not thinking for themselves, right? They're not stopping and listening to their gut intuition, which would tell them this is not a good thing to do to people. This is not a good thing to say. And instead, they're just trying to, you know, kind of give themselves over to kind of almost like ward off any possibility of being called racist um, and giving themselves over to these companies who are making a fortune, out, many of whom are making a fortune out of this, and who have no interest at all in education or democratic values, the values of tolerance and independent thinking. So I would say there is absolutely not one good thing being achieved. Um, I would say they pose a threat to a liberal idea of education and they pose a threat to our deeply deepest held values, really, humanistic values. It sounds like a really serious situation. What can we do to make it better? It is a serious situation. Uh, I try not to get too down about it. Because <laughs> um, it seems like, whoa, a huge tidal wave sometimes. I think, well, there are Don't Divide Us are kind of working in, I mean, I just say multi-front, you know, as many ways as fronts, as many ways, as many fronts as possible. This needs to be challenged. So we have been working kind of like horizontally and in a grassroots way, trying to encourage parents and teachers to let us know when this is happening, talking through the ideas with people that want to raise it with their schools or with their, you know, line managers. And we've also been lobbying kind of upwards as well because there are interested, very principled individuals who get this. But unfortunately, they are uh, kind of, if you like, involved in party organisations which are dominated by people who don't and don't want to touch it and who lack the deep thinking and the principles to really take this on. So my main hope really does come in the common sense of people, the sense in common, if you like, that we all have to say, look, you know, don't just, you don't have to accept what anybody tells you, no matter how expert they are. Just, you know, look, think for yourself, does this... Does this explain your life? Does it make sense in terms of the way you live your life? And if it doesn't, start asking questions and don't be scared to. You're not on, you're not on your own. You know, the majority of people do believe that, do think poll after poll do shows that parents don't think Britain is an institutionally racist country, you know. So you're not on your own. Um, so my, my hope, if you like, is in that, is in, is in ordinary people, um, if you like, wising up, screwing up their courage to speak out and getting together with like-minded people. How do you feel we should um, look at our colonial past and the issues that seem to divide us related to that? Um, well, I think it's really interesting. I'm just, gonna, I'm just going to say, I, I'm going to just give you an anecdote of uh, 
Jawaharlal Nehru's um, first TV interview in Britain in 1953. 1953 was, I think, the coronation, 52, 53, the coronation of the Queen. It's also um, the first republic in India, the, India's first republic day. And Nehru came over to Britain for the coronation and he was interviewed by four leading editors of the Times and the Telegraph and two others. And they said, um, you know, Mr. Nehru, you know, don't you hate us? White guilt isn't totally new. You know, don't you hate us after what we've done to your country? And he said, no. And they said, well, why not? You know, we colonised your country and, you know, you were in prison for 16 years. And he said, well, you know, um, we don't hate for very long. And it's good for everyone to be in prison for a short time, meaning that that way you know what freedom is, you know? And it's it's that, in, and in his voice I could hear... Um, the kind of echoes of every Enlightenment philosopher, of every person that's fought for freedom and knows that there are more important things to do in trying to build a better world for everybody than to kind of, you know, rail against the past. That, sure, you know, rubbish happened, you know, horrible things, cruel ha things happen. They happen in empire, they happened in slavery, and they happened before that too. But for every one of those things that happened in the past, um, something in the opposite direction happened too to stop it because we don't have slavery on the scale that we had it. We don't have um, that kind of cruel uh, empires in, in, in the way that we had. So we have made political and moral progress, right? And that's through the better efforts of human beings. So why rail, why spend all your energy trying to kind of score a political point on something that happened, you know, 200 years ago? It's not going to help anyone suffering today, is it? It's... It's um, all it's doing is uh, fueling division and tearing apart any basis for solidarity. Can't go along with that. So, you know, acknowledge it. Sure, you know, if you're, you know, you know, there's a bit of a myth going round that we don't teach. We don't, you know. I think just Mallory Blackman today, in fact, was talking about um, we need to teach about the, you know, all the 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 truth about history. Which, you know, stated like that, who could disagree with that? But you know when it's done in the context of racialized politics today, that's not what is meant. What is usually meant is, we want you to have a particular attitude to history. And that is not a better history, that's politicizing history. So there's a difference there that we need to tease out. So it's a very encouraging anecdote, one of our Nehru there. Uh, where do you yeah. see how coming from uh, as your organisation and uh, someone working in this field, where do you see hope coming from um, now? I see hope from the fact that parents are beginning to speak out, that some politicians as well are beginning to speak out. Uh, teachers have not yet, I think, spoken out publicly, but they certainly are coming to Don't Divide Us and other organisations working in a sort of similar sphere. You know, I don't think most teachers, you know, most teachers... Um, do not want to indoctrinate their children, right? They do not want to go in and they don't want to turn their kids against their parents either. And the more that teachers are being forced to do that, I think more, the more we'll, you know, eventually speak out. It's, you know, it's up to, up to organisations like us, like ourselves and others to, you know, make sure we're heard and seen so people can, you know, can act as a sort of beacon, not of in like shining enlightenment, listen to me, but just like you're not alone come and talk with us if you want to get more confident in your arguments and things like that.
So I'm quite, I'm hopeful. You know, the night has 12 hours. It's, it's going to, you know, daylight will come. We've just got to make sure it does. Okay, so Cooper, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lee.